Welcome back to the 46th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some of the top stories, two of which talk about education, the current system in the U.S. from high school to college. And then we're going to follow that up with an article that talks about the unrest going on around the world in Russia, China, and Iran, and future implications. And then, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So I'll pose the first question, and then we can go on to the little rant I have, and then I'll pose the last question. Have you have we lost sight of what makes America's school system and education system in general special? We no longer teach that America is the greatest country in the world. We, of course, have flaws that must be highlighted and learned so that we can avoid them in the future. But is an education system that doesn't inspire hope in the students, hope that they can do better, hope that the fortune that they have for being born in America will be beneficial to them. Does that system actually benefit the nation? And more importantly, does it benefit these students that we are teaching that America is not the greatest country in the world? And of course, you know, I want to hear your thoughts. I want to see some comments about it, but I think it comes down to, do you actually think America is the greatest country in the world? I think that's a very important precondition to this conversation. If you don't believe America is the greatest country in the world, then of course you're not going to want it taught in schools. And I don't know where the disconnect is anymore. I don't know if it's that these teachers truly don't want to teach that America is the greatest country in the world because they want to focus on our flaws and ensure that we don't make those same mistakes, or they just don't want to teach that America is the greatest country in the world because they don't believe it and they don't like the values that it has. I mean, I have no idea. And there's obviously varying levels to this. No one teacher or teacher's union is going to have the same position as another teacher or a teacher's union. But it's interesting that it is a system-wide phenomenon that, for the most part, we are not teaching American exceptionalism anymore. All right, three comments down there. Let's jump into the first article. This one comes from the Daily Signal. I know, a lot have been coming from them recently. From plummeting test scores to woke curriculums, Ben Carson's addresses America's crisis in the classroom. So covid provided parents with a peek behind the curtain, behind the door, as to what was going on inside classrooms. And they didn't necessarily like what they saw. Quote, COVID-19 also unearthed, also unearthed and gave birth to the moms for liberty when they discovered what their kids were actually being taught, what was going on in the classroom. And listen, we all know that more, the more the National Education Association, the more these special interest groups grow in power, the more at the expense of dumbing down education system and children becoming more and more illiterate, end quote. 
And let's be clear, I, this is pulled from an audio interview, so that's why the quote's a little bit weirder than it should be. But at the end of the day, you probably get the gist. The guy who's talking here, uh, he's Larry Diamond, and he's saying that the more these special interest groups get involved, whether that be unions, whether that be certain groups that want to sell certain books to teach in schools, the more they get involved, the less beneficial these systems are for children who are learning. And you may be asking, well, what? why unions? Unions are going to make sure that the teachers are paid well. Therefore, people are going to want to actually teach, and it will be a successful industry where smart people will go. And it's always an interesting counter-argument. But then also remember, the union keeps in the bad teachers and the ones that don't necessarily care as much. They're just there for the paycheck. They get protected by the union as well. So while there are some benefits, there are also some downsides. And I think we need to understand that I take that back. Larry Diamond was not actually speaking in this case. It was Armstrong Williams. And we need to understand that Armstrong Williams is coming at this from his side, along with Ben Carson. They have their point of view. They have their predetermined, not narrative, but ideas, values that really change the lens through which they see this story. So when we take a step back, we can understand where they're coming from, which is, yes, the more these interest groups are involved, the less beneficial it's going to be overall. But does that not mean that there are some benefits in some cases? Of course not. So making such a generalized, broad statement is not necessarily the best way to go about it. But I do agree that at the end of the day, if we were to say, okay, we can have all these special interest groups in there and we can go forward, or if we have no special interest groups, we can go forward. If you were to propose those two options to me, I would take the latter because I would prefer that these special interest groups are out. But since we have a not a black and white view of the world and that's not necessarily the reality we live in, we have to come to a compromise. We have to have a middle ground. And I think that's something that the author and the speakers here in this audio interview really failed to talk about or at least show their opinion on. So he mentions that the public system didn't just start failing during COVID, though. There were failings before that, with average math and English scores lower than in the 80s. But why is this the case? Is it just schools? Is there another aspect here? Is it there a cultural problem that we need to be addressing? Quote, one of the things that we often forget is that family is also a significant culprit. We don't like to talk about this. When you think about single motherhood and adolescent pregnancy rates, especially in minority communities during the previous century, have produced generations of children without a second parent who are born into poverty and lack nutrition and actually adequate habitation. They are born burdened with figurative change in the race of life, end quote. And the interesting point here is lack of nutrition. Uh, I was reading, or maybe it was I was listening to a podcast the other day, but I had heard the fact that the amount of nutrition that you receive as a baby can greatly impact your IQ. And obviously that follows, but I had never actually thought about it before. In, in communities where it's harder to get good quality food that has good nutritional content and all the vitamins and nutrients that these 
kids need that could be a hindrance as well. And I never really thought about that. And that's why food security is a very important topic to kind of weave into this. And yes, I know at the end of the day, this is a lot of different information, a lot of different factors. And that's why this conversation is so tricky because we can't just say, oh, it's the school boards. Oh, it's the teachers unions. Oh, nope. It's just the single motherhood rate or or no, it's the fact that these communities can't get food. There are so many factors at play here. That's why it makes it extremely tricky. So that's why I picked out this article, and I didn't want to just come down on one side and say it's absolutely this. I wanted to pull out all the stops. I wanted to try to address as many angles as possible because it's a conversation that needs to be had, and it. I'm not trying to give solutions. I understand that get just at the end of the day, saying there's a problem and not giving solutions is not a good thing. But I'm also here to inform, and I'm trying to make sure that anyone that does listen to this understands that there is more at play here. When you hear political talking points about this certain topic, just understand there's a lot more to it, and they're probably just playing on the one that they think they can get the most votes with. Then again, that's a little bit cynical for me, I understand, but hey. All right, and then to the point that this single motherhood and adolescent pregnancy rates and this cultural uh, aspect to the education system. Ben Carson gives a personal example, an interesting story about his mom. Quote, my mother was still horrified that I was getting these grades. He's referencing that he was getting terrible grades. And she worked as a domestic cleaning other people's homes. And she had noticed that they did a lot of reading and didn't watch TV a lot. She also concluded that this had a lot to do with their success. She came home one day and imposed that on me and my brother. And we weren't happy campers, believe me. Days where we would have called social services on her. But we had to read the books. And I didn't like it very much at first. But as I started reading about people of great accomplishment, great entrepreneurs and innovators and scientists... I started to understand that you don't just become one of those people. You have to work at it. And the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. And all of a sudden, I became a bookworm. I was really reading everything I could get my hands on, end quote. And though this, of course, is anecdotal, it provides a very important insight into the structure that is needed on the family side of the conversation, uh, that a child needs in their life in order to grow, in order to succeed, or at least have a chance at succeeding. And the author talks about how the education system has been dumbed down and talks about how children are no longer challenged like Mr. Carson was. And you may be saying, well, how is he challenged? At the end of the day, reading these books rather than sitting down in front of the TV, sitting down in front of the TV and watching content is the easy path. Being forced to sit down and read, absorb, critically think, understand the stories, the undertones, the lives of these people that he's reading about. This is a challenge. It's a small challenge. It's something you can do. You can challenge yourself. Uh, The analogy may come up, okay, do 15 minutes a day, do a 15 minute a day run, and eventually you can make it to 30. Eventually you can make it to 45, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And that mentality of challenge yourself a little bit and then you can push yourself to do more and then you can push yourself to do more. And if you just keep challenging yourself, you can end up better for it. And that's what Carson's mother did. 
the system they had in place, just sitting down and watching TV, she challenged it. She said, you can do better. You can sit down and read. You can force yourself to learn about these people. And the important thing there is that we have a good example that it worked. Not saying it's always going to. Some people just can't sit down and read. Some people would rather go out and pump iron for 30 minutes extra a day rather than read. But they're still challenging themselves. They're still pushing themselves to be the best they can be. And maybe after they come back from pumping that iron, they're willing to sit down and do their homework for a little bit longer. I know as a kid, I would always go out and practice lacrosse for 30, 35 minutes to an hour some days before I would do my homework just because I wanted to do something different. I wanted to practice and get better. And also, it made me feel as though I was doing something productive, even though I wasn't inside still doing my homework. So this idea of constantly challenging yourself is very important. And both Carson and Williams say that the education system no longer challenges students. The family outside school doesn't challenge students, but it's even more important that they be challenged once they get into school. Not just their ideas, not just the ability to critical think, but also challenged to experiment, try different writing styles, try different approaches to math. This is how innovation comes about. This is how we have people with diverse thinking, is they challenge themselves. They start thinking for themselves rather than just listening. The best student, the good students listen and absorb. The best students listen, absorb, and transform. They take what they get, they understand it, and then they do something better with it than they were told they could do. So I think that this article really speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, there are lots of factors that go into the education of a child, but the education system has been dumbed down a little bit. There's been a little bit of pushback from teachers' unions to that fact, but it's been dumbed down a little bit, and this continued path of making it easier so that more people feel comfortable rather than challenging them is only going to be beneficial Sorry, detrimental at the end of the day. All right, so our second article comes from The Conversation. Religious freedom and LGBTQ rights are costs clashing in schools and on campuses. And courts are deciding. So as LGBTQ rights have become a more public-facing discussion rather than one that's been held in the back rooms of academia, the realities that have begun to bounce up against social walls, especially the religious norms, have become ever apparent. Quote, states have been led to some of the most high-profile judicial controversy controversies. In 2022 is no exception. For example, the Supreme Court will hear arguments December 5th, 2022, about whether a designer can refuse to create wedding websites for a same-sex couple. A ruling is likely to be in late 2023. Lately, many of these controversies have begun in the education setting, both in K-12 through schools and on college campuses. As professors of education law, who often write about First Amendment issues in schools, I see these cases, which are trying to balance tensions between fundamental rights as potentially shaping new precedents, end quote. And this author takes a very middle-of-the-road approach, which I, I very much appreciate. He's just trying to lay out the facts, lay out both sides, and explain the argument and the controversy, and not necessarily giving too much of his opinion. It comes through every once in a while, but it's hard to really eliminate your bias. I bet when you're listening to me, you can 
say, oh, yeah, I see where he comes down on that. I can see where his bias is. And though I try to be objective, it's hard sometimes. And I know some of the stories I choose definitely have a lean. But at the end of the day, I like the approach this author is taking, and I appreciate it. So the first big case the author talks about is one that is coming out of New York at Yeshiva University. So if you don't remember this one, it was a few months ago. The, a certain group on campus wanted to create an LGBTQ ally club, and they proposed, they did all the paperwork, and then they proposed it to the administration at Yeshiva. Yeshiva. And they denied them the stamp of approval, essentially saying that it goes against the religious values of the college. Quote, the Pride Alliance filed suit alleging that the university violated a provision of New York City human rights law, which bans discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender. After a state trial court rejected Yeshiva's defense, that it should be exempt because it's a religious institution, the school appealed to the Supreme Court, which granted a brief stay of the order on September 9th, 2022. Five days later, however, the court, Supreme Court vacated the stay. In other words, the justices declined to block the order that Yeshiva's officials recognized the club. The court did not address the merits of the claim, but told university officials that they must exhaust other avenues of appealing in state courts before they can ask the Supreme Court to decide. Still, four justices dissented. Their concern about the case was clear. Quote, the First Amendment guarantees the right of free exercise of religion, and if that provision means anything, it prohibits the state from enforcing its own preferred interpretation of Holy Scripture, end quote. Justice Samuel Alito wrote in his dissent. So, this is always an interesting one because the Supreme Court has dealt with many different cases when it comes to religious liberty and how it can clash with individuals' rights. There was a podcast episode and article that I went through probably a month ago at this point that talked about how the Supreme Court, for the most part, not always, but a lot of times it has been very cautious when dealing with religious issues in a case about someone being fired from a K-12 through Christian school, they were fired because they had, were in a same-sex relationship, and that went against the values of the school. And the Supreme Court, at the end of the day, sorry, I don't know if it was the Supreme Court of the United States, I believe it was the Supreme Court of the state that this was happening in, said, we're not going to touch this. We're not going to get involved because if we're to make any judgment here, it is infringing upon the religious institution's right to sovereignty. And this is a, a big thing on how the courts interpret the ch- separation of church and state. Some judges say that we can have the church and state completely separate and still rule on them and enforce certain policies for the benefit of society. Other judges would say that in any way, shape, or form, if we interfere with the inner workings of a religious institution, that is the state having an opinion and getting involved in church business and should not be allowed. And I think at the end of the day, that's a very interesting conversation because though I agree that we need a 
separation of church and state, at the end of the day, it gives churches a lot of leeway. If all they have to do is claim that someone is working in a ministerial fashion, meaning they are spreading the word of the Lord, they are functioning as a member of that church and spreading the faith, and they could basically do whatever they want to them. Of course, there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, it gives them lots of leeway because the church is so is such a hot topic that the courts don't necessarily want to get in the middle of it. They don't want to, the public outcry. They don't want to be seen as suppressing certain religions, so on and so forth. And this is why this dissent, when I heard it, it made me really interested. The fact that it's a dissent in a conservative court. I thought there would be a majority here coming down saying that the schools cannot be forced to do something under New York law. And if you notice the language that Alito uses here, the free exercise of religion, and if that provision means anything, it prohibits the state from enforcing its own preferred interpretation of Holy Scripture. So he's not saying that yeshiva needs to comply with the state. He's saying that the state can't overcome the church, just reinforcing that idea that the church gets to run as it wishes, and it's completely independent. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think that in this case, that kind of logic doesn't offer any real solution. At the end of the day, it says Yeshiva can do what it wants to do, but it's not answering the question as to whether or not Yeshiva has the ability under the law in general, not just in New York, but in under the Constitution, to exclude this club. It's just saying that it doesn't have to follow the local ordinance, essentially. And that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help the LGBTQ club members who want the, the club on campus. And it doesn't give Yeshiva any guiding principle going forward. And I think the Supreme Court needs to really grow a pair. Sorry to use that phrase, but grow a pair and start addressing these cases on their merits because they have wide implications. If certain religious organizations, schools, churches, if they are not given a clear outline saying you do not have to follow these certain ordinances and you are protected when you don't follow them, then they're going to be caught in fear and maybe not spread their message as much, maybe not want to include LGBTQ people in their community and spread the Lord to them because they're afraid that they might get in trouble or there might be some rights issue in the future. And if you don't give clear guidance to the LGBTQ people as well, then they're going to be stuck in limbo saying, wait, hold on, so are we allowed to do this or not? Do we have the right to do this or not? Should we be pressing this issue or are we just stuck where we are? And we are leaving both sides in limbo. And I don't necessarily think that at the end of the day, it's a good thing. All right. Our last article comes from NPR. And we take more of an international look at this point. Why countries that usually don't see dissent are now seeing people protest? So, obviously, if you've been paying attention to international news, protests have been happening in some of the most authoritarian countries around the world, such as China, Russia, and Iran. 
Quote, the people of these countries went to the streets for different reasons. In Russia, it was to protest against the country's invasion of Ukraine and forced conscription. In Iran, it was the death of a young woman in police custody after she was detained for violating the country's strict dress code. And last week in China, protests began over China's strict zero-COVID policy. These acts of defiance, though, are rare and have serious consequences. Some protesters have been arrested, others killed. But despite that, the protests continue, and some even demanding that their leaders step down, which is very unusual, end quote. And usually the people in these countries, they are contented. They stay to themselves. They don't necessarily protest. But now you see all these people finally being fed up with the baloney that they have dealt with for all these years. And they are seeing the unrest around the world and finally voicing their opinion. And, you know, actually, I should probably phrase that as a question. Do you think it's that they are fully fed up or do you think that they're seeing other citizens, other populaces rising up against their authoritarian regimes and saying, we can do that too? I personally think it's a little bit of both. I think at the end of the day, the bargain, and I'll go with China here, because though I understand a little bit of what's going on in Iran, I don't understand Iran and Russia as much as I understand China, because that's one of the key areas that I've spent a, a, a good amount of time. Not the most, I'm not an expert, but that's one of the areas that I've been concerned with the most and had a lot of episodes about, as well as been reading about for a few years now. And the deal in China with the people in the CCP, the Communist Char- the Chinese Communist Party, was that we may give you very little rights. We may have a very authoritarian regime, but at the end of the day, we will allow you to prosper. We will pull millions out of poverty. We will provide you with economic opportunities, and we will ensure that you can live your life to the best of your ability without breaking our laws, essentially. So there is a bargain there. You get authoritarianism, but you also get economic prosperity. But as COVID has shut down the country, this economic prosperity has been cut in half. These people have realized that, okay, you say you're doing this for our best interest and you're being very authoritarian about it, but where's the economic benefit that you you basically promised us? So it's really calling into question Does this government actually follow through on its promises? Can it still provide that economic relief, that upward mobility that we so yearn for? And that is causing a lot of people to go out and protest and say, you're no longer a government that serves our best interests. You're suppressing us. You're trying to control us. And we're not even getting our money for it. This is unacceptable. So that's the fall apart of the conversation in China. And I think that it's more discontent with the current government. But in Iran and Russia, I think that it's discontent with what's happening, but also it comes down to looking at the unrest around the world. I mean, Iran's been leading this for nearly, wow, two, two and a half months at this point, and Russia's been doing it for a while as well, and they're probably looking at each other saying, yeah, these people are unhappy too. They're protesting their authoritarian government. Let's keep going. Let's keep pushing. So... I think there's a little bit of both from both sides. But if I had to say it's either more independent or dependent upon the other unrest, I would say that it's 
mainly independent with a little bit of inspiration from outside countries. Quote, there's one stunning through line, and one element of it is that the regimes have been performing very badly in meeting people's expectations in governing in the way that people find acceptable and tolerable. Of course, the colossal disaster that put Putin has inflicted on Russia has been a result of invading Ukraine in a particularly noteworthy regard. But you look at the long-ruling disaster that the Islamic Republic has been in Iran as a result of their ineffective modes of governance, and now in China with zero-COVID policy that has inflicted misery on hundreds of millions of Chinese who have had to experience these neo-totalitarian lockdowns. And then the second through line, Michael, is that as a result, each regime is facing a legitimacy crisis now, that is a sharp decline in the belief that the regime really has the right to govern, end quote. And when a populace of a nation, of a state, asks if you should have the right to govern them, you are going to start having problems. And that's why you see a lot of these governments cracking down on these protesters, because they cannot have this question spread around. They cannot have people questioning their legitimacy and their ability to govern. The author's discussion brings up a really important question much later on, and I didn't pull a quote because I think it would be a little too long for this segment. But it poses the question, how much control do these, or can these regimes have? And how much can the leaders of these countries truly exert that control? The author mentions that all of these states have, in some way, a surveillance network in place, especially in China. And this is kind of a new type of authoritarianism, one that we'll call technocratic authoritarianism. These kind of measures like social credit scores, constant surveillance, and so on, they, they really suck the goodwill out of the people. And they really say, okay, at the end of the day, you will have this social credit score if you want to move upward. We will surveil everything you do. And it scares people. It makes them not want to live in that country. It makes them scared to just go outside and do anything. And maybe if you're making enough money, if you're just going along with it, you're going to your job and you're just a cog in the machine and you're making enough money, maybe you'll be satisfied with it. Maybe you'll be okay with it. But once the system starts, the economic system starts falling apart, then all these questions get raised about the system that they're in. And it's not going to be beneficial for China. Though I don't see him collapsing anytime soon, like the author points out here at the end, it's maybe a pivot point in how Xi Jinping addresses the people. And maybe he realizes he has to tread a lot more lightly than he thought he had to going forward here. All right, so with all that negative stuff out of the way, let's go to our daily delight from Now18 News. Video of man giving bath to lion's cub in tub will do away with your Monday blues. So normally cats, both big and small, don't love baths. But that's not the case with this little guy. Quote, a video was posted by an Instagram account named Just Animals showed a lion cub being bathed by a man who fondled the not-so-big cat with his hands and pampered it in the sweetest way. Thus, the cubs seemed to enjoy the bath as the water rushed in through the faucet, end quote. But, you know, the cub was trying to be a little bit playful. He was trying to make sure that the guy knew who was still in charge. 
Yeah, quote, the cub even tried to harmlessly bite the ter- caretaker, which left the internet in awe, end quote. And some of the comments are very cute. And the video itself is also very cute. And if you want to see any of the cute video clips or any of the photos or read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there is also the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. Try to retweet, post, comment on something daily. And on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the link to the podcast is always posted so you don't necessarily have to go searching for it on YouTube. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.